0: Welcome to this latest uh, UK and a Changing Europe Isolation Insight event at which we're going to be talking about the local elections in May. May's local elections, what's at stake? And I'm delighted to have a fantastic panel comprised of Professor Jane Green, who is at Nuffield College, Oxford, co-director of the British Election Study uh, and director of the Nuffield Politics Research Centre. Professor Michael Thrasher, who is an election analyst on Sky News and an associate member of the self-same Nuffield College. Kate Proctor, who's political editor at Dodds Group. And finally, last but not least, who needs no introduction to any of you, Paula Surridge, who is Deputy Director of the UK and the Changing Europe and at the University of Bristol. As always, Do send your questions in on Slido. And as always, because I'm very lazy and don't want to have to read them all and make choices, if you vote for the ones you want posing to the panellists, I'll do it on that rather populist basis. I notice already we've got a couple of questions, a couple of which aren't directly on the themes of today's things. And we might get to them, we might not. But I want to try and stick quite closely to the issue of the elections. And so on that theme, Jamie, if I can kick off with you, How important are these elections and what's your hunch about them from where you sit now?
1: Thanks so much, Anand, and um, thank you to to you all for inviting me to take part. And hello to anybody that's watching either now or later. Um, Okay, so I think all of us are going to say something along the lines of this and then other people will no doubt say things more wise. I think, you know, we have to start off by thinking first that we're looking back to these Fascinating benchmarks. So the benchmarks when the local elections were last fought took place in a very different period of British politics. And they also took place in two different kinds of parts of British politics. One was before the EU referendum. One was after the EU referendum and yet still before the 2017 general election. So we have these you know, really, really interesting benchmarks Both of those um, election comparisons um, differ in other important ways. So one of them favoured the Labour Party. The Labour Party is defending the majority of the seats that were fought in 2016 before the EU referendum. And the others currently favour the Conservative Party, who are now defending the majority of the seats that were fought before the May 2017 general election. So why is it so why is this so interesting and so important now? So the reason, or one of the many reasons, is that so much has happened in that time. And so we have this really fascinating time where we've seen this very clear realignment of voters around the two major parties. And so in 2017 and in 2019, but to different degrees across those two general elections, you saw many more Leave voters coalesce behind the Conservative Party. And of course, that's meant that the Conservative Party has made gains into Labour's heartlands. That was much more true in 2019 than it was in 2017, but nevertheless important changes took part in 2017. And then of course, what you also saw in 2019 is the fragmentation of the vote away from Labour really, in terms of the split in the Remain vote. And so you've seen this important change that's taken place at the national level in general elections since these local elections last took place. And that's, of course, very much more true for those elections that last fought before the EU referendum, but is also substantially true for those elections last fought after the EU referendum, but before the May 2017 general election. And you know you have to sort of cast your mind back because so much has taken place. So those elections were fought in 2017 under Theresa May when it looked like Theresa May was going to increase her majority at the upcoming general election that took place in June. Um, and that didn't then happen. So we've got this really interesting comparison. And I think what we'll be looking to see is to what degree the Conservative Party is managing to really solidify that realignment. Um, So that's really interesting. I mean, the other interesting and important thing about the local elections is of course there haven't been any. Um, So we haven't had any kind of other electoral test since December, 2019. And so that's a year and a half, you know, that's a long time. Um, So that's a really fascinating, you know, it's a really fascinating kind of first test of whether that realignment, that encroachment of the Conservatives into the notorious Red Wall is going to persist. And yes, of course, there's been important changes since December 2019 too. So Nigel Farage has exited the main stage of British politics. Brexit has been officially done, or at least um, in the process of being done, but has been resolved. Um, Labour has a new leader. And of course, the Conservatives have presided over this enormous event in terms of the coronavirus crisis. We saw the Conservative Party lose support to don't knows, majority of which were amongst their newer voters in December 2019 um, on the mishandling of the crisis. And yet here we are with the Conservative government presiding over one of the most successful vaccine rollouts worldwide and these elections taking place right off the back of a, of a very, or in the middle of a successful vaccine rollout and the opening up of the country. So, you know, really interesting questions there about, you know, that realignment, about what's changed, about whether the Conservative Party can maintain that hold that they um, successfully managed to achieve in 2019, but also lots of questions, lots of questions about how the local elections differ from national elections and whether or not the Liberal Democrats, for example, could both retain their support in these elections and also somewhat increase it, which would, which would be damaging potentially to Labour in certain seats that they might want to make foothold in. Um, we saw in 2019, this kind of pincer movement on Labour, as I was saying. So we saw Labour's votes being lost to the Liberal Democrats in more Remain areas, Labour's Leave voters, being lost to the Conservatives in more Leave areas. And so that kind of pincer movement could be seen again. Um, And is also happening in Scotland and Labour's position could be somewhat eroded in Wales. So, you know, it's a a really fascinating moment, Um, but I'll stop there because I'd love to hear what other people want to say too.
0: Thanks, Jane. And actually, while I'm at it, let me remind people who are watching that Jane is the co-author of a working paper, really interesting working paper, (laughs) the relationship between uh, wealth and leave voting that we're putting on our site, I think, next Monday. And it's a really, really interesting piece of work and well worth looking at. Turning to you, Michael, and actually, I should also say that if you want a really good guide to these local elections, the piece that Michael wrote with Colin Rallings in our Brexit and Beyond report is just an invaluable guide to look out for. But I don't know if you want to su- <laughs> summarise that, Michael, but what should we be looking out for when these when these local elections happen? Well, I mean, it,
2: this is really unprecedented to have two sets of elections with different baselines. Um, running alongside one another, and it really, you know, I'm finding it complicated and difficult um, to assess what may happen. And you might very well have, uh, you will have the situation whereby all of the parties um, shout out victory. And um, and seeing through the spin is going to be uh, incredibly difficult. As Jane, as Jane said there, that... Um, The 2016 baseline, um, and the reason why Starmer, Pierre Starmer has described the elections as tough, um, the 2016 baseline is challenging for Labour. And uh, we've already seen in uh, elections in these areas, metropolitan boroughs in particular, uh, that Labour's vote fell sharply in May 2019, i.e. six months before... They did poorly in the in the general election, and so I think this is really the first opportunity that we. It is the first opportunity that we're going to have to see whether the 2019 election is is evidence of a realignment, or it was just a one-off that um, you know um, the Tories have sort of taken advantage of um, of. Um, of Labour's uh, struggle in these areas and um, it will all revert back to normal. So, Starmer and Labour see the 2000 election defenses as tough. Um, in the same way, the Tories are saying 2017 is a very uh, high base for them to, to, to uh, defend. And um, for that reason, we I mean, my expectation will be that the Tories will lose some ground in the the Shire counties, and they will gain ground in, um, in certain regions where the Metropolitan Borough elections are taking place. Normally, we never see these two areas have elections at the same time. So the Metropolitan Borough elections are timed such that they never overlap, never coincide, rather, with the county elections. So this is the um, you know, a, a rare opportunity to see these two things uh, in conjunction uh, with one another. And so it's going to be um, very difficult. The other thing, um, and of course, the, you know, running an running election during COVID and, and all the rest of it is going to be difficult. It's difficult for the administrators. Um, it will be interesting to see how many people actually turn out to vote, how many more people register um, to, for a postal vote. And the other thing that we've, we've got to bear in mind with these elections is that um, a number of um, many voters will have more than one ballot. And uh, we noticed over years that um, the number of so-called split ticket voters, i.e. people on the same uh, trip to the polling station, Uh, would vote for one party in one election and vote for a completely different party on another election, 2021 is a golden opportunity for that kind of behaviour to become manifest. So, so for example, in Cambridge, uh, they've got county council elections, they've got district council elections where they'll have up to three votes uh, in in the Cambridge wards, They'll have um, a a vote for the um, um, the mayor, the the, uh, metro-wide mayor, uh, and also a police and crime commission election. Now, I guess the folk of Cambridge are pretty smart and intelligent, um, and they'll understand uh, all of the ballot papers that come through their door or are awaiting them in the ballot in the polling station. But this really is an opportunity for people to vote local and national at one and the same time. And um, we've already seen, we're almost at 18,000 candidates standing in the local elections. We've seen a big uh, growth in the number of independents standing, and we've seen a big growth in the number of uh, candidates standing for residents' associations. So my hunch will be that um, people um, will, perhaps more people um, uh, than normal may turn away from the national parties and and support people um, who are representing local interests. More of us have kind of walked uh, in our local areas, more of us will have noticed our local neighbourhoods in a way that we've never seen before, and more of us may actually start to think, you know, uh, local government is about local.
0: Interesting. I have to say, God, who'd be a sophologist? It sounds incredibly messy. Are you almost saying that the best way to look... I mean, we should look at these local elections as two sets of local elections. I mean, whatever the temptation to come out with one big national picture afterwards, because the baselines are so different.
2: Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm persuading everyone at, at Sky News to set, to think in those terms. Right. And, and the complication is that you've got areas. There are 59 district councils uh, that are holding elections. And in those... Those people... Will also be voting in county council elections. And and those two, so I'm voting for my district council where the baseline is 2016, and I'm voting in my county election where the baseline is 2017. And anyone who comes along and says, I can tell you what these results mean, right? Is, is probably not, you know, either telling the truth or doesn't understand.
0: Well, we've got loads of questions that are going to be asking you precisely what the results might mean so I'll get back to you on that in a minute but uh Paula over to you for the mo- for a moment what, what are you looking out for what do you think particularly interesting about these elections oh you're muted
3: yeah thought so I'd try and fill in um in between the in between the gaps because um, Jane and Michael have done a great job of, of painting that very big picture and I think one of the things particularly in local elections but actually telling the story of of british politics more generally um, over this period is the importance of the story of third fourth fifth parties and as michael just alluded to for local elections um independence and assorted others whether they be very local in terms of residence associations or more slight slightly broader in terms of, of things like the yorkshire party and so one of the things i'm looking for as part of the bigger national story is what happens to the lib Dems. they've almost certainly will do better at local election level than their national polling implies. And that vote share has to come from somewhere. So where that vote share comes from, um, will be important. Um, And I think it will be a test of what the Lib Dem support might look like over the next three or four years to see what kind of areas they're able to rebuild in at local level. So the 2019 election and even the 2018 local elections, uh, Lib Dems started to make real headway in very pro-Remain areas but they'd got previous history in some very pro-Leave areas um, at local level and so it'd be a really interesting thing to watch whether or not that kind of swing behind the Lib Dems being mostly in pro-Remain areas continues, I suspect it might, or whether or not they're able to rebuild in some of the areas in the southwest for example um, in the um, east of the country as well, where they had some strength before, but it wasn't based on a graduate pro remain base that they've seemed to have moved to. I think alongside that, the Greens are also likely to outpoll their national share in local elections. And again, that vote share's got to come from somebody if we're trying to balance the local national equivalent vote share with the current opinion polling. So it's where those votes are coming from that will then start to influence. That national picture. And we saw in 2019, we saw a kind of plague on all your houses, rise of independence and, and local parties. And that again, definitely something to watch out for. I think though we do need to, we're all very enthusiastic about elections, as you can tell, but we also we, we need to temper that with the fact that the electorate aren't always as enthusiastic about elections. And turnout in local elections historically is very low. Um, around one in three, it obviously varies across places. Um, my, my fun fact that I found out a few weeks ago whilst researching local elections was that Hartlepool had the lowest turnout in the 2018 local elections. And I suspect that won't be the case this time um, as it'll have other, other things drawing people to the polls. But how that differential turnout plays out, I, I don't want to call, but let me tell you why I think it might matter is because you get two types of voters more likely to vote, older voters, who we would expect to be favoring the conservatives given the age dynamics in our politics now, but also more highly educated voters who tend to have higher levels of political interest, which will be favoring Labor, but also the Lib Dems and the Greens in certain places. So we've got two different effects going on with turnout and how those two will play out. I don't know, but it's certainly something to watch out for. Um, and another thing that I was thinking about just there, as um, Michael and Jane were talking, will be the importance of postal votes and how and the difference postal voting makes to how you make decisions in local elections. So, um, as Michael said, you might turn up at a ballot a ballot station, that's polling station. I've got got my things, I've got, got my terms confused. I knew it wasn't right, and discover you've got three votes but the party you wanted to vote for only have two candidates. Faced with that ballot paper, you've got to make a decision there and then. You might tick an independent without knowing much about them. If you've got that ballot paper at home to complete as a postal vote, you can Google that person. You can find out more about those independent candidates. And I don't think we really know how that might play into the support for some of those um, more local candidates when people can find out a bit more about them from the comfort of their own home rather than being sort of sprung on them on the ballot paper um, everybody of course will will be looking at the red wall will be thinking about how all this what all this means um, for labor but I think it's really important that we remember that there are more than two parties in our political system and that the story of those other parties is has been so important in the period since two thousand and fifteen that these Elections kind of refer back to, so my I guess my, my thing is to watch a bit broader than just that two-party vote share.
0: Brilliant, thank you very much. Now, Kate, you come at this from a slightly different angle, as you're not an academic, you're a you're a journalist. Uh, do you do you see things in pretty much the same way? Are you going to be sort of facing that temptation to overinterpret these results to try and get some good headlines?
4: <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting to listen to all of those points. I guess actually, from a journalistic point of view, I do see it in my mind as a bit of a two-horse race, to be honest, um, right across the country. I know there's been some really good insight there on the other political parties, but I guess as a journalist, I'm interested in Labour and I'm interested in the Conservatives particularly, and whether we are going to have the continuation of the narrative from the 2019 general election that the Conservatives are going to make great strides in towns, um, they're going to encroach on some more traditional uh, perhaps Labour areas, those red wall seats that we saw Um, going conservative in 2019? And are Labour going to become, you know, are they going to lose the seats? I mean, I think in in 2020, Labour were expecting to lose around 500 seats across um, the local elections, had the elections been held last year. So, I mean, Labour are expecting huge losses, and it's just, it will be interesting to see whether they retreat even further, in a sense, into um, just trying to hold ground in the metropolitan areas. So I guess for me, this is an election really where I'll be focusing really quite heavily on district elections and also the metropolitan boroughs to see basically what happens to Labour and whether the Tories are going to continue their march because the conservatives if you talk to any of them and particularly if you talk to the northern research group which is um led by um conservative mp jake berry they'll talk to you all about towns and how much everything they need to prosper in the future as a party is all going to be based on the towns and it obviously won't have gone past anyone's attention that you know they've come up with the towns fund they've come up with the leveling up fund i'd be really interested to know And it's a shame I'm not going to be able to go out on doorsteps, but I'd be really interested to know whether that has actually cut through to voters at all. Um, I think we need to talk about turnout. Obviously, people know that, you know, local election turnout, even at a good spot is about 30 percent. And I think what's going to be really interesting this year is going to vote in person. Will people be bothered to go and stand in a socially distanced queue? you know, we always talk about the weather when it comes to elections, but if you're having people trailing all the way around the block for a local election, um, they, you know, that that people might just, you know, lose patience and leave and just feel that they can't be bothered to actually stand in a huge queue. Um, the other thing as well is that the coronavirus response has been heavily centralised and I do wonder really over the last year whether people have actually got out of the the sense of understanding really what their local authority does for them, how their local authority differs, the decision-making benefits them compared to perhaps their neighbors in another area. Um, Just because everything has been so top-down, so the coronavirus response, the vaccine rollout, it feels as though, well, furlough schemes Um, whether it's been council tax relief like a lot of this has come from centralised government and I just wonder if there might be in the last year a slight eroding of the understanding of what your local authority does for you and I'd be just really interested to see whether that has an impact um, on the election Um, and finally I I would just say um, the Hartlepool by-election which has been shoved into all of this is another really interesting and will be Another interesting point in all of this and another huge test for Keir Starmer to see whether he can keep hold of that. If he doesn't, it'll be really, really embarrassing for the party. And I'm sure there'll be we'll hear all the claim, you know, all the calls for Keir Starmer to go if he can't even hold Hartlepool. But we'll see what happens uh, on the day. So those are some of my thoughts on the uh, local elections.
0: That's fascinating. Thank you. And a slight slight counterpoint to what Michael was saying in a way. You're saying you wonder whether people remember what local governments for because of all the sort of national action. On the other hand, Michael's saying, you know, we spend a lot more time in our local parks and wandering around our local neighbourhoods. And maybe that sort of makes us more acutely aware of our links to our neighbourhoods. It'll be very interesting to see I mean, you, you, these are the things that are very hard to find out, aren't they? Whether voters had local or national things in mind when they were actually casting their votes. But it is interesting. Jane, you wanted to come in on the uh, minor parties.
1: Excellent. Yeah, it's, it's a really kind of... For me, it's an open question, um, whether or not this election is going to see a continuation of the pattern of voters tending to coalesce between the two major parties so there's and i think it's just worth thinking about that because and why it's happened and why it might be important so if we think about i mean going back to those benchmarks the biggest thing that changed in 2017, one of the one of the big things that changed in 2017 was this very very substantial increase of people getting behind the two largest parties and you know if we think about why is that taken place um you know, you, you, you see this kind of very, very, very sharp increase in support for the minor parties in 2015. That was when UKIP did really well. Um, but you also saw that kind of steadily increasing over time. And I think what's really fascinating is, you know, understanding why that two-party share was so much higher in 2017 and then persisted um, to a certain degree in, or you know, substantially in 2019. Um, and if you think about, You know, the dimensionality of British politics, the left right nature of British politics, the second dimension of British politics, the minor parties successfully competing on that second dimension for for a large proportion of that period. But then Brexit forcing voters to assess the mainstream parties on both of those dimensions on the left right dimension and also on the Brexit dimension. Now we call it the Brexit dimension, but the second dimension, it's all sort of been coalesced into this was quite a super second dimension. I guess, you know, because we have seen that large increase in two-party share since since the last time these local council elections were fought, because voters are assessing the two major parties on this kind of two-dimensional space, it could be the case that we still see some increase um, in the two-party share and voters still tending to, to look at the two largest parties. Now, I don't think that will be as much as... general elections because minor parties tend to outperform in local elections um but you might nevertheless see an increase relative to those benchmarks you may we may or we may not and i think you know like paula says watching what the liberal democrats do is going to be key to understanding where they might be able to kind of get more of an electoral foothold in future we really overlooked i think um, I say we, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the commentary on the 2019 general election was so focused on the red wall that we overlooked the gains the Democrats were making um, amongst certain kinds of groups and certain mm. types of constituencies then. So so I think the votes for minor parties in these local elections will be, of course, higher than we're likely to see in general elections, or we have seen in general elections. It was certainly true in the last local elections in May 2019 the Greens did really well and then of course we had those June European Parliament elections where the Brexit party topped the poll and the Liberal Democrats came second and so you know it's certainly true that there's this huge propensity to vote for minor parties when people are fed up with the with the largest parties but I would just temper that with that very substantial increase we've seen nationally in the support for the two major parties and it whilst minor party support tends to be higher in local elections, it does nevertheless tend to broadly track how the parties are doing nationally in the polls, if not at the same levels. So I'm kind of that's one of the things I'm going to be looking
0: out for. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, We're half an hour in. There's not been a single question about the European Super League. We need a new audience. Uh, could you spare a thought for Mary Hawking, who's obviously feeling a little bit left out because she says she's, she's only getting to vote for the Bedfordshire Police and Crime Commissioner and nothing else. And one question I suppose <laughs> that comes from that is, what are the parts of the country where there isn't much going on? Uh, she's asking, you know, am I alone here? Are there other parts of the country where actually they're, they're getting very little in the way of electoral choice? This might be a really unfair question to ask you. but Well, yeah, the,
2: um, Bedfordshire is one. Um, it, you need to look at, for unitary authorities, that operate on a different cycle to the other unitary authorities. So um, I think Middlesbrough uh, also doesn't have any um, um, local elections. So you you need to turn away from the counties where there are clearly county elections or the ex-counties like Northumberland and Durham, where there are now unitary elections um, and and just focus on a handful of places. Um, But it really is a handful of places. And um, since we're ter- we are talking about turnout, one of the tests, if you like, um, uh, you know what what interest is there electorally in the Police and Crime Commissioner elections is to look at the turnout in places like Bedfordshire, because the <coughs> people have got no, if you like, um, you know, uh, sort of impetus to go and vote in the local elections. The only thing they've got is the Police and Crime Commissioner commissioner and. Um, I would expect, and we're not looking looking at 30 there, we're looking at 20%, um, you know, turnout.
4: Yeah, I was going to say in the year when they just had the first police and crime commissioner elections, um, wasn't that about 18% in some areas? It was was really low, I think especially in Northumberland in the north.
0: And how much more difficult does it make your task that we're, all right, we're always in a unique and specific moment in time, aren't we? But, we've got you know, the lifting of lockdown, we've got a successful vaccine rollout. Does that make it harder to draw general conclusions because we're at such a specific moment of what has been an unprecedented national crisis? Does that, does that mess things up for you as sophologists or do you just sort of take it in your stride and say, we'll, we'll look at the results? I mean, does, does it tell us less than you would normally expect about national patterns simply because of the specificity of the moment with regard to the pandemic? Does that question make no sense at all, which I'm willing to accept no,
3: as well. I, I can give you an answer, but it's not quite the answer. It's a slightly different answer in that I suspect sophologists, commentators, everybody will treat these elections as if these are being conducted in normal times and judging everybody's results against baselines from 2016 or 2017 and the narrative that comes out afterwards. And actually, we're not in normal times. Yeah. It, I don't think people are allowing it to make... Things difficult enough for themselves. I think we're still trying to behave as if politics is just carrying on, and the world is exactly as it was before.
2: Under in in normal circumstances, what we would have had um, since the general election is hundreds of cancelled by elections, and we could have used those and cross-checked those against what's been happening in the national opinion polls. I'm not during this during this particular period, I'm not exactly clear in my own mind, I'm no polling expert, but I'm not sure what those opinion polls are actually capturing in terms of of actual voting intention. Um, And, you know, the question is about how sophologists interpret these elections. And I I think, um, you know, um, you can line up a a whole series of sophologists and they won't agree with one another um, what they actually meant. all was talking about the Liberal Democrats and the Greens, for example. And um, the Green, I think the Greens, uh, Lib Dems are currently on about 9% in the national opinion polls. And um, the conventional wisdom is that the Lib Dems will, will kind of do rather better in the local elections than, than that. Um, but, w- but what we need to uh, reflect upon is that in 2017, in terms of the national equivalent vote, the Lib Dems actually did rather well Uh, at those elections. And um, for my uh, thinking, since the general election, I don't think the Liberal Democrats have had any opportunities, no council by-elections. They've really not had any opportunities under the new leader to sort of um, create a kind of new voice um, for the party. Mm -hmm. So I would only expect them to do well in places that they've done well previously. Um, And, um, you know, so I don't think they would advance... For me, the problem with the Greens is that they might actually attract votes, but they don't win seats. Uh, as, a, as a party, they are particularly um, uh, inept, if you like, in terms of concentrating their vote in areas. And um, one thing that I thought about before these elections took place was that maybe uh, the Liberal Democrats and the Greens have common cause and that they would avoid one another right, in terms of trying to attract local votes. Absolutely um, minor um, evidence that that's taken place. If you look across the metropolitan boroughs, for example, where these parties may have an appeal to younger uh, urban graduate voters in these places, Hmm. you will invariably find a green candidate contesting the seat alongside a Lib Dem candidate. So they clearly have not been able to work any kind of electoral alliance uh, with one another, either nationally or, or locally. And so, um, which, of course, allows the two main parties to um, you know, dominate the, the situation in terms of seats, not necessarily votes, but um, neither Lib Dems or, or the Greens in these areas acquire um, enough votes to, to actually convert them into seats.
0: There's an interesting question from Jen Williams, who's asking, are these local elections more important than previous ones? And she gets the sense that MPs seem more involved in these local elections than she remembers in the past. But is there there a greater sense in Westminster that this really matters? I mean, partly for the reasons Michael said that, you know, we haven't had elections for a long, long time. There's an awful lot at stake. Is this this a fundamentally different sort of set of local elections because of the importance that Westminster is attributing to them? Kate I don't know if you unmuted yourself. Yeah Yeah, I mean
4: look I think from a political journalist point of view it's just really fantastic to be able to talk about elections, do something related to elections and actually talk about politics in the way that we're that we're used to. Many of us were regional uh, local journalists before we got to Westminster, so we are fascinated by it. And it is just a chance to not write about coronavirus. That is why I think there's excitement and interest, um, maybe a little bit more so than in other years. And, I, you know, it is a test, like I said. I mean, it's probably a very obvious point, but I think it's just going to be really interesting. I think that there was a lot of Tory... um there's been a bit, I would just probably say a bit of arrogance really in that whole red wall bounce um, and I, that has permeated through the parliament. In Westminster obviously the Toys have got this 80 seat majority so I just think there's a lot of interest to see at a local level whether that popularity um, basically can continue. Um, I also think, you know, we haven't spoken about London yet or, or really the regional mayors in a great deal of influence, in a great, uh, sorry, I think In London, um, we are obviously, the the likelihood is that Sadiq Khan gets back in, um, but I'd be really interested to see about the assembly because Labour only have 12 seats on the assembly and it would be interesting to see whether the Greens and the Lib Dems can make some more ground there. I also worry a little bit about the regional and the Metro mayors. Um, I think there's quite an expectation that for some of them, like Manchester and um, the West Midlands, that it will just be a continuation. Those people will get back in again. Andy Burnham will get back in um, and that might actually become not a very interesting place electorally. I don't know if people um, have a different opinion, but I feel like we're not likely to see a big switching over or changing of hands. So that sort of mayoral level might actually get quite boring for voters um, going forwards um, in the coming years. But yeah, I mean, at a local level, I think there is interest. Um, I think it probably, in part, is because it is a different political dynamic, a different political story, and I think journalists are just really interested to sort of get their teeth stuck into it and do some sort of old-fashioned reporting on it, really. And I was going to say, as well, I think, think, you know, we
1: shouldn't underestimate the kind of dilemma that the Labour Party is in and, you know, how... I talked about this realignment and we've all seen that, you know, we've all seen the Labour Party increase its support amongst younger voters that slipped away a bit in 2019. We've seen this much more important kind of role of age and education. We've seen the red wall fall to the Conservative Party. And, you know, I think the difficulties for the Labour Party are just quite profound in this particular context. And, They were profound because of Brexit, because clearly the Conservative Party, I mean, I'm sort of going to just state the obvious, but, you know, the Conservative Party were able to to almost wholly unite the Leave vote behind them, whereas the Remain vote was so split. So you've got this, you know, I talked about this pincer movement on Labour that's happening nationally with the Liberal Democrats and also the Conservatives on the Remain, the Leave side. But we shouldn't underestimate Labour's difficulties in Scotland. Um, where Labour Labour's electoral dominance in Scotland has collapsed. And we could see the Conservative Party really kind of solidify their second place in Scotland because they're picking up support from people who don't want independence, but who do want to leave the EU. And again, that kind of people that don't want independence but want to remain in the EU, that vote is more evenly split. We could see Wales... Um, in Wales Labour's support drop off further and one of the most close contests in Wales and we could see this important we'll see this important red wall test in the council by um, in the council elections but also in the Hartlepool by-election so kind of politically our major opposition party under a new leader is undergoing its first electoral test within this new landscape and with that massive question that was so strategically difficult for Jeremy Corbyn um, of that question of Brexit gets yeah. resolved, actually, electorally speaking. And I think Michael's completely right as an aside to say we shouldn't be necessarily assuming the Liberal Democrats are going to do better because, of course, in 2019, they, had the whole, they still had the Remain cause to campaign around, which, you know, is open question as to whether that's going to help them now. But it's, you know, it's a hugely difficult terrain for Labour to fight in. And this question of whether Labour can make an electoral recovery was hard off the back of Brexit, but it's also hard in the context of coronavirus. Mm. And we're in the middle of this, you know, of course, enormous economic shock, but a much bigger shock in which the Conservative Party's reputation for competence was being eroded, but has been, I think, probably, well, I don't have good data on this yet, but probably, restored over the or restored up to a degree over its handling of the of the vaccine rollout so you know profoundly difficult for the Labour Party and I think therefore all of those different tests in Scotland and Wales and in in the urban areas and the shires you know these are all really really important tests for Labour because they've got to work out what their path back is going to be Um, and this is going to be a very difficult context, I think, for Keir Starmer.
0: You can only imagine they're going to start vetting their publicans a bit better, though, in future, I thought. <laughs> uh, I mean, wh- I don't know if any of you want to want to talk about this, but I mean, Wales is fascinating, isn't it? Because actually Drakeford's sort of recognition and approval of the job he's done are all looking really, really good. And yet it doesn't seem to be reflected in, in support for the party, which is, a, 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 I don't know if anyone wants to comment on that or leave it, but I mean, I, mean, the- I
4: would just say that Plaid have um, made this their really big push in recent years for um, local elections they're saying I think the phrases we need to <coughs> I don't know if anyone can jump in and help me with this it's something about yeah. like take it back to 99 or basically it's about channeling the spirit of 1999 when Plaid did particularly well um, and so I know that um they're expecting to basically um, make some gains, which could be uh, pretty interesting. And I feel like the narrative in Wales has completely changed. I feel like it was just a, not that long ago um, there was such big fear that Labour would could possibly lose control, um, and they would have to form some kind of like coalition. And it doesn't seem to be the case now. The only thing that confuses me with Wales is is, is although. Mark Drakeford has shown his own um, agency, authority, and he's made decisions that have been different to Westminster. In terms of the death toll and case numbers, you know, Wales hasn't had a successful story in that respect. Um, and I wonder whether that will really come back to, to hurt them um, when people actually go to the ballot box. So yeah, Wales is interesting, but for, as a, from a journalist's point of view, I'm just personally quite interested in Plied to see how they do.
0: Anyone else want to chip it on Wales? You don't have to. Just, oh, they,
2: they, no, they, no. no,
0: Come on. Paul, okay. you go first.
3: I was just going to say um, that point you made about how the, the, the Welsh Government are seen as having handled things really, really well, but aren't... I mean, the polling today is a little bit better for them, so the polling in Wales is a bit bouncy. Um, but it doesn't seem to have translated into a surge of support for the party of government. Um, Instead, it seems to be reflected not in a a desire for independence necessarily, but in greater support for devolution and for more powers uh, for the Welsh Senate, which I think mirrors something that we saw in the early days of the Scottish Parliament. Um, I think there's an interesting um, parallel there to draw out. The other thing to remember about the Welsh Senate elections is that ukip did quite well um, in in the, in the last time these elections were held so there's in the same way that in kind of we've, we've had quite a lot of electoral cycles for that vote to sort of wash out in other parts of the country it's it's still working its way through um in wales and that's something that's going to make it quite unpredictable
2: michael yeah i was just going to add that i mean you know really echoing what what jane was saying there about um you know, labour, labour's on trial, if you like, and um, you know, just let's remind ourselves that if labour doesn't recover in Scotland, then it has to do else, well elsewhere. If it falls back in Wales and fails um, to hold on to the seats that it lost to Conservatives at the last general election, so we have a situation where in, in Wales, the uh, in the for the uh, Parliament, the seats are held by by Labour still and there are a number of seats like Wrexham, which the Tories gained, and therefore Labour's on trial, can they hold on to those seats? Or if the Tories lose them, then again, Wales, you know, seems to be slipping out of Labour's hands. If Scotland, if Wales, then the only, um, if you like, sucker for Labour is to do well in the English shires and to replicate what Blair did in 97. And therefore, it's not only got to regain uh, Derbyshire in the in the county elections; it's got to make uh, gains also in places like Lancashire and, and Nottinghamshire, which allowed the Tories, um, you know, to to um, take over those councils, and also across southern England. And um, you know, when you look at the the, the polling, and when you look at uh, you know what people, how voters think of the party. I really can't see how Labour can start to appeal to those um, Southern voters. And moreover, they, they don't have many opportunities from here on in uh, to, to demonstrate that. So if we, if we assume a general election in 2024, you know, assuming that um, you know, it goes on uh, that long and they haven't abolished the fixed-term uh, Parliament Act, then really it's 2023 is, is the great proving ground uh, for Labour in these areas. Um, i don't think they' i don't think they're they're in a position to do very well in the in the county elections in two thousand and twenty one and that means they only get twenty twenty three really uh, to demonstrate um, some strength in these areas
0: interesting uh, We have got a question on the European super league, so my faith in re- in humanity is restored but i want to put to oh, you a question good. from uh simon Mayers which I love this question you 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 might not. But it is which of the particular contests will tell us most about the current state of British politics? <laughs> I tell you oh, one a lot. I, I tell you the one that won't is Hartlepool.
2: People say people say to me about local elections, in, you know what's going to happen in Hartlepool's local elections. Um, and I say the, the my only piece of advice for forecasting local elections in in Hartlepool is don't. Um, It is so idiosyncratic, but I mean, trying to, I think for me, um, if I was to name one council that we should focus on, I'd go with Derbyshire, I guess, right? Labour, Derbyshire kind of flip-flops between the two major parties. And, um, you know, so it's not only the distribution of vote in Derbyshire that will be interesting, and we won't know that for some time, of course. Um, but also who, who wins control. And the Tories took it straight off Labour uh, in uh, in 2017. And if Labour and, and don't forget that you know Conservatives gained um parliamentary seats across Derbyshire. Um, so I um so if Labour is recovering in the Shires, then Derbyshire, they have to take back control of, of Derbyshire.
0: Anyone else want to hazard some, something in particular to look out for that is a bellwether of the national mood or the state of national politics? Kate?
4: Um, yeah, I'd say Kirklees and Calderdale councils in Yorkshire um, are probably both quite interesting um, because of that, uh, you know, it's pretty close between Tories and Labour. Um, you know, if I think, if I can remember this correctly, um, one um, is on a knife edge and the other one the to- uh, between Uh, Labour losing it completely and the other one would be a real kind of tussle but for me they are the kind of red wall um, areas where the Tories are hoping to make you know gains they're hoping to win both of those councils and you know they're they're also areas where there are quite a lot of um, I guess very left-wing Labour councillors who were huge Jeremy Corbyn fans who have found it a little bit difficult under Keir Starmer. So I just see those two councils really as a bit of a microcosm for what might be going on. I
1: don't don't have specific places, but I'll give you four types. Um, So if I were to have to go and pick out my four places, they would just very simply be remain Conservative Labour and leave Conservative Labour. Um, If we wanted to kind of, not over read into what's going on in these particular elections but understand whether or not the swing is moving in different ways in different kinds of places I'd be doing that because we all are going to be doing that come the next general election to understand this two-dimensional structure of bridge politics.
0: Paula did you want to chip in?
3: Yeah I'll add one one other place for people to watch um, which are the councils in South Yorkshire in the areas that didn't, where there was a high Brexit party vote and Labour held on, because I don't think there's going to be a high reform UK vote in those councils. And so it will be a a bit of a indicator. Turnout won't be high, so it won't be a perfect indicator by any sense, but it will be a bit of an indicator of whether that vote might bounce back to Labour now that Brexit is done, or whether it's on on a journey to the Conservatives. Um, having having been through the Brexit party in 2019.
0: Next question is, is, what do we know about uh, the level of postal vote applications and what implications does that have? Do we have data on that? I don't know very much
4: about this and I did think I need to go and write about this.
0: Cool. None of the
4: other panellists are going to help so, you out, it sounds like. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I, I just have no idea how popular this has been this time around at all. Um, and then we've got all these stories as well about care homes, um, you know, people not being able to go out and vote in person. So postal votes are essential for uh, older people. But I don't know if anyone else has got anything to add on this one.
2: My my um, contribution really is only just to say that the, the, the volume of postal votes registrations really varies quite a lot by local authority um so in in places like Sunderland over half the people uh, on the electoral register will have a postal vote in places like Hull um it's it's no more than a fifth of people mm. have, it, uh, have um, voted you know elected to vote by post and that really reflects how proactive the each local each local authority has been in terms of persuading people onto um, uh, the electronic register and um, the, the postal vote register, I should say. And um, I, I suspect that because of, of, um, of, of the COVID, um, the local um, election offices haven't, been, haven't necessarily been fully staffed over this period, and um, that or their ability to process applications to postal votes uh, is, is limited. We have seen quite a lot of postal voters registering in Scotland, um, but there, are a different kind of uh, electoral climate exists uh, altogether differently. I've seen no evidence at all in terms of a systematic um, record of, of postal uh, voting and in, in registration in, in in England. And uh, I suggest Kate goes away and writes that story for us. <laughs>
1: I think you know it was a really kind of curious moment wasn't it when we were in the height of this wave this wave that's just coming to you know thank god something of a close um and the government decided to go ahead with these local elections and they decided to go ahead with these local elections in person and so you know given that turnout is lower we have to be cautious about how much we go and then make inferences about this but you know, you have to assume that postal voting in a pandemic context is going to be somewhat influenced by the people who who feel particularly vulnerable um, to the pandemic itself. And so, you know, if we had good data on postal voting, which we don't currently have good data on postal voting, I do think it would be particularly fascinating. And I personally thought it was an opportunity missed, actually, to encourage a, a very, very safe, election where people felt in, incredibly you know totally insured from the risk of the pandemic in order to go into vote because we didn't know we were going to be in a relatively good place when these elections were fought so you know it i think like Anand, um, it's and michael kate you should definitely go and try and dig into this because we'd all <laughs> love to know, you know we'd all love to know how how the pandemic as well as the local variation is, is affecting people's desires to go to the polls. Um, but how turnout then impacts on the actual vote shares of the parties is long contested, and normally I think overstated.
2: I just, just something that Kate said to <laughs> people, um, and it's, a, it's an important question about people queuing safely outside polling stations. I don't know where you live, Kate, but um, in most places, there are seldom long queues outside polling stations for local elections. So I don't. I live
4: in, I live in Tower Hamlets. <laughs> so. Um,
2: okay. So it's, uh,
4: this it's a little bit. It's a slightly different area. You can have queues, but um, I just wondered if um, I know you hardly ever have queues outside a polling station. But I did wonder this time around whether there would be.
0: Because I, of this.
2: Yeah. I just don't think the turnout is going to be there that you you know uh, you will turn up to vote uh, and there will be a long queue. Okay. I, you know I just don't see it
0: we've got a question about metro mayor elections from Arianna Giovanni who's asking will there be a test for devolution in England and you know what do we expect to happen in these metro mayor elections will the centralization of covid responses work in their favor in terms of people' interest in them or not i think I might have misrepresented the question there but Here's an opportunity to say something about the Metro Mayor elections if you want to.
1: I would just, um, you know, we were talking earlier about turnout in the police crime commissioner elections. So if we think about, you know, all these layers of elections, um, the Scottish Parliament elections, the Welsh Senate elections, the local elections, you know, we're in this kind of hierarchy of turnout. Um, and I, I think I've got that hierarchy right, but I'm sure Michael or Paula or Kate will correct me if I got that wrong. And then, and then you get into um, the mayoral elections, and then you get into the police crime commissioner elections. Um, and of course, the turnout then varies depending on the number of contests that you have going on at the same time. So the more contests, the more likely you are to turn out. Um, so we have to kind of take all of that into account because who are the people who are already participating in those metro mayor elections Um, and who are the people participating in those metro mayor elections across different parts of the country. Um, So kind of what's our normal and then that's the kind of question that these are very interested generally people who are very engaged um, and very you know have a high tendency to vote across all elections if they're going to vote in these less less national elections, I was gonna say less important, but I think that shouldn't say that. Um, And then you've got the question of whether or not the the kind of decentralization of the handling of the pandemic makes a difference to that. And I think I would say that's gonna be impossible to know, um, given all of that variation and all of those difficulties about who's participating in those elections as a general rule, I think. So I think it's it's one of those things where you could see with all of these, there's always so many questions about elections, which one can't help but think are kind of ripples in a general, much more general, much more influential tide.
4: Um, In terms of the strength of English devolution, um, I would probably say that the battle that you saw between Andy Burnham and central government when it came to regional lockdowns, um, it feels like a million years ago that this happened, but I'd imagine that probably sticks very strongly in people's minds and particularly in the greater Manchester area business owners etc I mean because effectively it showed that Andy Burnham when it really really came down to it didn't have much power at all Um, and he had to go along with what central government uh, required of him and asked him to do and had to deal with the financial settlement, settlement at that point that was given to him so Um, it's difficult because I haven't really been out of London, so I can't really absorb all of this, but I'd be really interested to know whether, um, the pandemic actually showed that English devolution perhaps wasn't quite the force that people thought it might be.
0: Interesting. There's a couple of questions, which I'm not going to put to you along the lines of whether or not, if the Tories don't do well in the mayoral elections, that could signal the end of that sort of devolution experiment under this government, but, uh, Well, there's a question specifically on Scotland uh, that I'll put you just in case someone's got the data. Uh, It's quite specific and it's simply are there any areas of Scotland that have swung towards independence more so than the wider swing? I mean, which parts of Scotland, if any, have become have moved more in a pro independence direction of late? I don't know if anyone has the data to hand on that.
1: I'm sorry, I, I don't. I but one thing I did think was interesting was when the the average support for independence dipped. And you know, when people saw A, the SNP having its internal struggles, and at the very same time, the conservative um, government handling the vaccine rollout well. Um, and so, you know, if you think about how people a different kind of benchmarking, but how people benchmark how well their government is doing versus the national government I think that was a really fascinating moment where people perhaps looked at the national government in Westminster and saw it less as a threat maybe possibly more as a good thing but I'm afraid that was quite that was quite a small change and I certainly not big enough for, for me to have noticed any within Scotland key distinctions so apologies I don't know the answer
4: um, I spoke to someone before this call um, on Scotland, um, and I can't answer the question that you've just presented, but um, in terms of places to look out for, they suggested that Dunbarton um, is, you know, an SNP Labour. Kind of that's a real tussle there and obviously you know Labour desperately wants to increase its um, its uh, number of MSP seats in, in Scotland so that could be somewhere they might possibly do well and the other seat to look out for is AIR which is an SNP-Tory battle um, and the, you know Tories will be absolutely desperate to try and claim that one um, but the way they describe the Scottish election and what's really important is obviously the SNP are going to win um, the most seats but it's about that tussle for second uh, place and um, it probably seems likely um, that Labour will still come in third on that um, but obviously this is all about them rebuilding um, and trying to make some gains with a, a new leader in Scotland and uh, a new national leader as well and um, so it was Dunbarton and Air. if you so, wanted yeah. to follow those ones. <laughs> Thank
0: you very much indeed. Uh, We've got a question about where the Greens might win support for. I mean, the specific question from Ginny Smith is, uh, are they winning support because of changes to planning laws? But if we expect the Greens to do relatively well, where, where are their votes coming from?
3: So, I always think about voters rather than places, which makes some of these questions really hard to answer. But if I talk about them as voters, and then you can work out where that kind of voter might live for yourself. So. I think the Greens, looking at the national polling, are starting to win over what I used to think of as a kind of none of the above vote that went to the Lib Dems, but also in a younger part of the electorate. So there's a part of the electorate who... Probably, if they'd been young voters in 2010, would have been Lib Dem supporters. But now the Lib Dems are a bit tainted for them, whether it be through fees or or through the coalition. And so they've moved instead to the Greens. And so where you've got significant numbers of that kind of voter, I think there's a chance for the Greens to do quite well in vote share. But as, as Michael was saying, that might not necessarily be that there might not be enough of those type of voters in specific places to actually win councillors and seats so that's the that's the bind for them but i think the other thing to watch with the greens given what i said before about south yorkshire is that role that they can play as an outlet for people who just don't want to vote for the other parties and we find in the um individual level data that there's no groups of voters that really dislike the greens so if they want to turn up and vote but they don't want to vote for the parties that are on offer the greens are a good outlet for them and i, and I think that's a potential um game for them as well
2: okay uh, i'll just add a, a, you know a point about you know the, particularly the, the council elections i mean bristol it, uh, has um, all our elections and um the greens are already reasonably strong there and um given uh, the problems to do with the uh, policing of Bristol um, in, in recent uh, weeks, uh, it might be a place to, um, to look really out for. Stroud is another area, but they, they haven't got, um, they do have elections. Um, so Stroud there. The, the um, Solihull is one of the metropolitan boroughs where the Greens, um, uh, you know, have some presence. And I think if you were trying to identify places where the Greens might do well, the place to start is is to start with places where they do well. I know that sounds stupid, but let me explain. Um, years ago, we um, I wrote a paper with a, ge- a geographer, Danny Dawlin, um, because we I'd noticed something interesting happening in, in uh, Kingston upon Thames in terms of the Liberal Democrat vote and seats. And um, essentially, if you looked at the sequence over time. You could see the Lib Dems win a seat, and then the next election cycle they'd win another seat that was adjacent to the seat that they already held, uh, and then uh, gradually, the, if you like, this uh, this process um, uh, expanded. And so we we called the, the piece, um, and this probably seems the wrong time to um, remind everyone of this: the epidemiology of the Lib Dem vote, and and. Um, and it really did explain how the Liberal Democrats, uh, we, we demonstrated that the Liberal Democrats' success was related um, to what happened in neighbouring wards. And um, I think the same thing uh, may happen uh, to the Greens. I do think that the Greens, um, relatively uh, to, the, to the Dems of that period, are, are nowhere near as organised uh, an electoral force the Lib Dems were uh, back in the the 80s and early 90s Um, but you know look so look in places where the Greens have one or two councillors and then look at the adjacent wards where the Greens have some representation they may well be the places that the Greens do well this time.
0: I've been reliably informed by someone that Nottingham City is uh, Police and Crime Commissioner only as well. Whereas Liverpool, apparently there are four sets of elections and actually someone reflecting what you said, Michael, worrying about the danger of people sort of just getting a bit confused by all the various choices they're confronted with when they go into the ballot. Now, we've, we've spoken quite a lot about Labour and the problems they face. And a couple of people have asked whether they whether you think or whether there's any evidence that the latest sort of arguments about sleaze are impacting on the government and will have an impact in these elections to come. I don't know if any of you can speak to
1: that i'm happy to um i was thinking about this myself over the last kind of couple of weeks and um, it's only a couple of weeks ago when the vaccine approval um was the highest approval rating of any post-war approval of anything and you know that was extraordinary and i was kind of digging around into that and a couple of us were online on twitter kind of saying is this really true you know and and it was the it really was the highest approval that we'd ever was and ever on record. And I think, you know, that's that's kind of the context for how I look at these stories about sleaze. I think, you know, you've got the whole country is focused on this incredible, incredibly important rollout. And I think, you know, the Conservative government is getting credit for that. Mm. Um, and the sleeves story is is still I think I think possibly and probably a a bit of a side story. Um, I remember when, you know, we remember when the expenses scandal happened and it was huge. It was hugely salient. It was hugely important. It was all over the newspapers. Everybody was talking about it. And, you know, it was kind of contentious. It was difficult to see and complicated to see whether it had really impacted any of I mean that was a kind of cross party so different but really it just kind of confirmed what people thought um so I I kind of when I think about this I wonder if it's like oh yeah the people that don't like the conservatives are going to say same old Tories but the people who are putting faith in the conservative government at the moment putting their faith in the government seem to be pretty forgiving Um, And accepting that this is a really difficult crisis. It's a really difficult time. It's a really difficult thing to manage well and giving them the benefit of the doubt. So I'd I'd expect it to, you know, not be quite as victorious for the Conservatives as it might have been three or four weeks ago when that approval rating was kind of of historic proportions. But I'm not sure it's going to make a massive impact. Um, really, Really important changes in the next few weeks.
4: I'd um, I'd re- I'd agree with Jane on that. I think this um, Labour clearly pushing this narrative about Tory sleaze, um, but I think that really is probably something that's better suited to a general election and maybe trying to shape the overall feeling towards a party rather than something that will actually um, really have much impact to people. Um, you know, when you go out on the doorsteps. don't want to patronise anyone by saying that local elections are all about bins but we do know that they are about local services very specifically. And I'm not sure talking about contracts that, you know, Matt Hancock may or may not have signed with people really is something that concerns people locally right at this point in time. So perhaps Labour are building a narrative that might work in the future, but not for a local election. So I think that's a bit of a mistake that they're trying to hammer that at the moment. Can I just add to
3: that? If there are, I don't think it's going to be a big influence at this election. I think it's a narrative that might run in the future. Um, but if it does have any impact, I wouldn't expect it to necessarily have an impact on Labour directly. So I would expect it perhaps to have an impact on some of the voters that we expected to move from Conservative to Lib Dem at the 2019 general election, but who didn't, who stuck with the Conservatives, who were not big, or certainly before the pandemic, were not big fans of um, of Boris Johnson, they're a little bit more liberal leaning, probably um, remain voters. So at the margins there, you might have some voters who are put off by this and who are now feeling more able to vote for the Lib Dems than they did in a a general election in 2019. But you're talking small and marginal effects that we'll never
0: be able to measure. (laughs) Michael, do you want to add anything on this?
2: Well, I just agree with everything everyone has said there, you know, um, I didn't think David Cameron's personal stock could go any lower than it already was, but um, apparently uh, it has done. Um, and I and I think um, really the story is, is really about David Cameron uh, more than, if you like, conservative sleeves. And I agree with um, uh, Paula there, that um, if there is an electoral effect, it, it won't be from... from um, People who voted conservative, suddenly voting labor, or who you know who uh, who left labor for UKIP, suddenly changing their minds and going back to labor. It doesn't really kind of um, it's not really a pro-labor story uh, in that sense. So I, I mean electorally, I don't think it, it it's there. and and I think um, it, th- these elections take place against the the context of the vaccine rollout, which we you know people are agreed has been uh, successful. And we've seen that with Johnson's uh, personal ratings, that they've kind of climbed um, steadily uh, during this period. So um, I think COVID and the the way in which the government has um, rolled out the vaccine programs, if if a national event does, if you like, transcend patterns uh, of of voting in the local elections, it's that rather than please
0: Okay. There's a wonderful sort of almost plaintive question here from Vicky Seddon, who's saying, how do we make sure local results reflecting local situations aren't reflected as sort of saying something about national party prospects? I suppose the short answer to that is we can't, because that's what will happen. But what longer term Lessons will we be able to draw from these local elections? I mean, we're not going to be able to say, "Okay, this is the state of the parties," and so if we had a general election the next. But what 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 conclusions can we draw that are of medium or longer term significance once these elections have been and gone? Do you think? That's a hideously unfair question, I think. But
1: I'm happy to I'm happy to kind of waffle a bit about this. Um, it, it, it's a good it's a very good question, and I think. You know, we all kind of, I started by saying there's been a realignment and it's, you know, there's this big focus on the national story and there's this big focus on Labour's electoral predicament and that's the national story. Um, And there's obviously a really important lesson there, you know, and a a kind of caution there about reading too much about the national picture. Um, But I think given how much has changed nationally, how important that change has been, how profound it's been, how deep it's been, it's going to be quite, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to look at the local elections as some kind of some kind of signal about that broader national picture. Um, whilst accepting of course there's lots of local variation, lots of local factors and, and everything else. I think what's going to be really hard is it's always difficult, frankly to read the reason for an electoral, electoral outcome from the patterns that you see in terms of places. It's always difficult to do that. And I think perhaps my kind of waffly answer is like, yes, we shouldn't do this too much, but we're probably going to do it anyway. And we probably should really in this instance, because it's going to tell us something and we want to know so much, but there's always a temptation to read across from results to causality. Yeah. And in general elections, we have the luxury, really. We have, you know, we have British Election Study data. We have other data that allows us over time to dig in to the individual level data and to draw out causal inferences, to try to tease out questions of causality and what motivations people had. Um, And that doesn't get as much focus in local elections. There are fewer people who are going to, we are going into the field, the British election study will be in the field straight after these local elections. We've just put the survey to bed. It is going to be possible to dig into that individual level data and to try to kind of tease out kind of what are the patterns, what are the individual level factors that seem to be at work here. Um, But fewer people are going to focus on that. Um, So I just kind of caution anyone from saying anything causal (laughs) about, you know, what elections really tell us until we've had time to look and dig into the individual data. But of course, that won't stop anyone from doing it.
4: Um, I would just say very, very quickly that for me, it feels as though we are perhaps leaving the Brexit era behind slightly um, in terms of it dominating the national conversation constantly. Um, I haven't written very much about, well, I don't think I've written a story at all about anything really to do with Brexit and the EU and its impact locally, which is, which is completely different to local elections that I've, I've covered over the last um, five or six years. Um, so perhaps this election is maybe just the very beginning of setting out new national conversations and perhaps it will throw up um, new areas of discussion um, perhaps that might be on the economic recovery. And we might not see much of it this time round because we're still in the middle of the pandemic, but maybe local elections going forwards might focus on discussions around what the correct economic response is. Um, but from my point of view, it's slightly um, nice to feel like we're moving into a different era of political discussion um, and we're not seeing Brexit dominating local elections.
0: Michael and Paul, do you want to we're almost out of time, actually, so this will be the last... Well,
2: I would just I would just like to say that it, it, for the local elections, um, you can basically make two interpretations. One is that they're all about local issues, and, and the second one is that they're all about national issues, right? And that sound, might sound contradictory, but there will be places that will, if there is a national trend in terms of the overall picture, there will be places that will will contradict that national trend. And there will be places where independents and uh, resident associations uh, win seats. And there will be places where the Greens make some advance. So there is enough difference to keep uh, the people who kind of think that local elections are about local government, about local democracy, to keep them happy. But it, it is important, as Jane says, that we kind of um, use the local elections as some sort of metric to know where we are in terms of, of the national electoral uh,
0: journey. Paula, do you want the last word?
3: I was just going to say, as as with every other person studying elections, I'll be really excited to dig into that BES wave. But the frustration will be when you come to analyse it, and this is an important point for how we move forward from the local elections, is that if I try to do any analysis on that local election variable, the turnout will have been so low and I'll have a very selected sample. And I think that's what we should remember, that whatever these local elections tell us, The people who vote in local elections are not a representative sample of the people who vote in general elections.
0: Excellent. A good salutary note on which to end. At which point can I simply... Thank the four of you. I thought that was utterly fascinating. It was really, really good fun as well. So, thank you so much for taking the time. I've got to thank you now because we can't pop back into a green room and have a glass of wine, sadly, which would have been nice. Uh, Thank you to our audience for joining us as ever. Do please, if you get a moment, fill in the survey that comes on the Slido. And we look forward to seeing you at our next event. But for the moment, have a really good day and enjoy the lovely spring weather. Take care, everyone. All the best. Bye-bye.